Well, we are continuing in our series, Faith That Walks. So we're going through the book of James. And so we're going to jump into that just in just a moment. I know it's a busy time of the year, right? I mean, there's graduations and weddings and stuff happening. And uh, this is our time to come in, really joyously sing about our Savior to our Savior, and now focus on His Word. So book of James. What we've learned so far is this is James, the half younger half-brother of Jesus, uh, and he is teaching us, teaching the early church, one of the earliest letters, maybe the earliest letter written by James, and he's telling us about the Christian faith, very practical, down-to-earth, easy to understand, short, only five chapters. And he, we've already learned that he's told us, hey, here's how we live the Christian faith. He's told us, here's where temptation comes. Here's how that process happens. He's telling us, hey, here's some of the ways that we should be different as believers. And today is really the central, most important piece of what he's talking about in his book. And it's basically this. He, the Bible's telling us that it's faith that makes us right with God, that we can have a relationship with him through faith. But the Bible also teaches that not all faith saves. And so the question is, how do we know that the faith that we have is legit, according to God, will save us? And that's what James is going to try to clear up for us in this section of Scripture. How many of you have been doing a lot of mowing? All right, I, I've been doing some mowing at my house. It just looks like I'm cutting hay, and it just you know leaves it there. I don't have a bag or anything, just stuff laying everywhere. But here's the thing. I, I have this great mower. It's lasted, well, I've had it for over 15 years, and I got it used. And it just keeps going and going. It's a zero turn. It's, it's ancient, but it just keeps going. But it's got its quirks. You know, some things don't work on it anymore. Well, one thing that it has is I, after I mow twice, I already know that the battery will be dead. So it doesn't charge its battery anymore. So I just automatically know to put it on the charger. So next time I need it, it's on the charger right now. So in case I mow, boom, it's ready to go. So, but how do I know? It's got a battery. How do I know the battery's dead? Because when I turn the key, nothing happens, right? It will not cause the starter to engage. It's just dead. Well, James is saying, hey, we can have faith, and it could be that the faith that we have is dead. It's not a living faith. And this is a huge question. How do you know your faith is a legit faith that brings us into the right relationship with God? And so he's going to handle this most important question, and he's going to do that. He's going to try to clear that up for us. And the way he's going to do it is he's really going to cover to this point in his book the three most dangerous lies that will lead us to dead faith. So he wants to make sure that we have the right living faith. And as he does that, through his book, he's telling us the three most dangerous lies. And that's why this is so important. So first lie is this. The first lie that people believe is that my works will get me into heaven. 
And this is just, it permeates our culture. If I live a good life, if I'm a good person, I will go to heaven. Ask anybody on the street, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Or what do you think's next? Most people will say heaven, or I'd like to think heaven. You think you're going to go there? Yeah, I think so. Why do you think you're going to get there? Because I've lived a pretty good life. Do you ever talk to people like that? That's what they always say. This is... This concept, if I live a good life, I'll get to heaven. This is how every other religion in the world besides Christianity operates. It's a system of how we can earn our way to heaven, how we can show ourselves to be worthy to go to heavens, whatever that system is. Systems are different, but it's always a way to get to heaven by what we do. It's the most believed religious concept in the world. And even Christians fall into this trap. Now, one of the problems with this concept is, no matter what religion, if it's I've got to do good, I think I'm going to go to heaven. Well, when you get really, uh, you start screwing that down, when you really get to the nuts and bolts of that, then the question is, how do I know when I've done enough good things that I've crossed the line to get to heaven? And in none of these religions do you really know. That's the problem. You, don't really, you just keep working, working, working. You keep trying to do, trying to do, trying to follow, trying to do whatever that religion says, but you never really know for sure. But then most people in our culture will think, yeah, you don't know for sure, but I think, you know, God will understand I think God will, you know, he knows what I've been through. I think he'll get it. I think he'll let me in. Tragically, many people who call themselves Christians believe this. It's not even just Christians in our culture. Even agnostics. Agnostics are people who, yeah, there's probably a God, but we don't really know who he is, and we can't really trust the Bible to tell us that. So, yeah, I'm not rejecting God because I see all the evidence, but I just don't know that we could know him. Well, here's what they'll think. Well, and then you'll say, well, what if the God of the Bible's real? And they'll say, well, I think if the God of the Bible is real because God is love, when I get there, then I think he'll know that I really tried to be a good person, and so he'll be okay with that. The weird thing about that is when you start taking, well, so you think you're, you tried to be a good person? Have you been a good person? Pretty good, but they're basing their goodness on their own standard of what's right and wrong, not on anything objective. So there's a real issue there. Even atheists who don't believe in God at all, you know, they sort of live for themselves. They would say, live to be happy. Follow your own rules. There's no God, so just do whatever you want to do. Just be happy. Live without regrets. The interesting thing is when I talk to atheists and get to know them, they never seem deeply happy. I've not met one that seemed deeply happy, which is really odd to me because that's what they're living for. And most of them have regrets, even though they won't say it that way. Because they'll know, yeah, I've done some things, so you just do whatever you want. Yeah, and how does that work out for you? Great. And so you don't, there's nothing you regret. Well, you know, there are some things that I did that at the time I thought it would make me happy, and I did it and sort of burnt some other people and burnt some bridges and wrecked some relationships. And, I, you know, I'm sorry that worked out that way. But, hey, at the time I was just living to be happy. So because I did it, and that's, I was following my own rule. I, I think it, I, it's not really a regret, but it's unfortunate that happened, and I kind of wish it didn't. Well, that's a regret. But anyway, they're not happy, and they have regrets. 
You know, so here's the deal. Jesus said this most popular religious concept, whether you believe in God or not, that we be good, that by being good we can get to heaven, that's a lie. Okay, so now the second most dangerous lie is this. What I say will get me into heaven. What I speak, what I say will get me into heaven. Now, James already countered the first lie, and now we're going to pick it up in verse 13 because we left off, sorry, verse 14 because we left off in verse 13 of chapter 2, and he's going to counter the second lie. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if, one, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And I'll just save you the trouble. He's basically going to say no. He, it's a rhetorical no. Saving faith, James is teaching us here, is not just something we say. And we have to be careful about this because some people in Christian circles will, will believe, I said this prayer, you know, and, and we do that here. I said this prayer, so because of what I said, I'm saved. And James is saying, be careful with that. Because if, if that's all you've done is just said something, if, you're, if your faith is just in what you said, that's not saving faith. He's warning us here. If a man says he has faith, but his life doesn't show it, can that faith save him? He's saying no. That kind of faith's useless. He's saying faith without action is dead. What he's saying by that, he's saying if you have real faith, it changes your life. A lot of you know that we have these four Ds, our purpose statement. And so there's four of them that we try to make it real easy to remember. What do we want? We want to help people first discover truth. By the way, this is the truth we want to help them discover. We want to help them discover truth. Hey, that there's a God who created, that God has revealed himself in the Bible. Once they get all that, then the second thing we want to help them do is then decide on Jesus. Because it's not enough just to know it. You have to put your faith. You have to trust Jesus. So you make a decision. Decide on Jesus. But then the next two Ds, do you remember what they are? The next one is we want to help them demonstrate their faith. We want that the faith would show up, that they would demonstrate change in their life. And then fourth, that they would deploy for others. Two of the Ds are really about how we can have confidence that our decision for Christ is real. It's because it shows up in our lives by demonstrating change and by deploying for others. Here's what he's saying. Dead faith is just words on your lips. Dead faith is a statement without a lifestyle. And James is saying, do not be deceived. Faith that's only words without actions is dead faith. And then James is going to explain that. Next verse, verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead 
being by itself. So he throws out an example. When he says brothers and sisters in this context, he's saying fellow believers. So what good does it do you, you call yourself a Christian, if you run into another Christian who has significant needs? They're without food and clothing. And this means even kind of more than a day. They're in this season in their life. They have no resources. They're hurting. They need food. They need clothing. They need help. But we just try to encourage them with words without doing anything about it physically. And, and we need to be real careful about this because we as Christians, a lot of times we hear people's physical needs and then we'll respond like this. Be careful how I say this. Be careful how you hear it. We say, I'll pray for you. Now, not downing that, we pray for people all the time. We should pray for them. But James is pointing out, if we're just saying, hey, I hope that gets better. Hey, I'm going to pray for you. Hey, this, hey, that. But we have the means to help them. We should be helping them. That's what James is telling us. So he's telling us that faith that doesn't change your life is like compassion without acts of compassion. It's useless. So as a church that follows Scripture, we try to help people. So not only point them to God, which is our most important thing, but we also help people with their issues that they have in their lives. So we help people with addictions. We help people, you know, by giving them groceries from our food pantry that is, people are, I, I just talked to somebody today that, that needs some food from the food pantry. So that, it happens all the time. We help people financially. We help everybody in our community in these ways, but especially if it's a fellow believer, we even ratchet that up even more because that's what God's called us to be our first responsibility. So God wants us to love and help all people, but especially brothers and sisters of Christ, we need to take action. So that's what he's telling us, that's what we do. That's what we do in our community, but then we're also doing this around the world. And when I say we, I'm saying you, you guys are doing this. If you give and you serve, you're helping us to do everything I just said. But beyond that, a lot of you know, we have a couple of orphanages in Thailand. We support orphans through the, in the Central African Republic, just different places where we know people on the ground and we know where our money's going to and how it's going to be used and that it will all be used for that. So we have these endeavors all over, all over. We do that, con we've been doing that for maybe 10 years. You know, we just do that constantly. But then recently, I'm so proud of you guys because we got the chance to help uh, people in Myanmar or Burma, uh, the, the internally displaced, IDPs they call them, internally displaced people, which are basically refugees that can't leave their country. So they, and in, in Myanmar's case, maybe you see it on the news, although it doesn't hit our news that much. It's like it hit, every, the world kind of reacted, it's still going on, and now it's old news. So even though nothing's changed, it, the needs are still there. And what's happening is people are being burned out of their villages and being killed, and that's going on as we speak today. And we know a lot of those people. I've actually had friends of mine send me videotape that I wouldn't even show in this room about bombs dropping on people as they drop and body parts landing and it's just awful. That's happening. And now these two countries, Thailand and Burma or Myanmar, where the civil war has been raging now for decades, but it's worse now since the military takeover, 
these countries are less than 1% Christian. But up in the north of both countries, you have these tribal people who we mainly work with. And I was asking a friend of mine who lives over there on the border, and I was saying, how many of these refugees, internal refugees, that are in Burma that are now not allowed to come into Thailand anymore, how many of them are believers? And and she said that about 79% of these people are Christian. The way she said it was 15% of them were um, Seventh-day Adventists, and 6% of them were animists as kind of a people group. That doesn't mean every person has a relationship to Christ, but that's how they would identify. So here are these people, 100,000 people, huge needs, people living in the jungle. And I brought all that up to say, we have helped them several times by sending food. And uh, I think you've seen the pictures, you know, uh, boats crossing the border from Thailand, taking things. We've talked about the Free Burma Rangers, you know, and the, and the documentary, if you haven't seen that, is very realistic to exactly what's happening there today. That group is involved in getting wounded people out of there, and so we're helping them. So all those things are happening, and there's still needs. We have several times sent resources over there, but as you can imagine, it's a big issue, and so resources are still needed. So if you're inclined, you can do the Dollar Club this morning you know, through electronic giving, or you could drop it off in the buckets and just put club or dollar or Myanmar, but you won't know how to spell that. But whatever you put, we'll know, and every cent of that will go to help those people. But I'm I'm just really here saying thank you. Here's Here's what James is saying, though. Faith that's only words can't get you to heaven, all right? And now the third most dangerous lie. So number one, works can't get you to heaven. Words can't get you to heaven. And now he's going to tell us this. Correct, now this one will throw you for a loop. Correct doctrine will not get you to heaven. And you're going, whoa, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like something you would say. Kevin, you're always pushing correct doctrine, right? Doctrine is important, but I'm telling you, correct doctrine is not what gets you to heaven. And here's, what, here's how James says it. He's saying, saving faith is not just something you merely think. And to make his point next, James brings in an antagonist. He basically creates a hypothetical person. We think he's hypothetical. James knew a lot of people that were in churches that his letter went to, so he might have known a person exactly like this, but just didn't want to call him out by name which, by the way, sometimes Paul does. But he just throws this out, and he uses a hypothetical antagonist to say this. Here's here's where it starts, verse verse 18. But someone may say, hypothetical guy, you have faith, I have works. He's saying some people might make the argument, because James is saying, hey, if you have faith, you're going to have works. But some guy may come along and say, well, you have faith, I have works, That's, it's two different ways, it's all good, you can have one or the other and be okay. And then we see James's response to that. Show me your faith without the works, what you just mentioned, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Here's where he gets to the doctrine part. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith 
without works is useless. So he's saying, hey, demons know correct doctrine, but that's not helping them. And we don't talk, demons are real. We don't talk a lot about demons because we don't have to worry about demons so much if our faith is in Christ and we're following him. But uh, sometimes I'll share the story just uh, that I had to study about demons when I was in graduate school. And I was also working at the time. And one time I was working kind of a weird place. It was like a bunker inside a wall where you're controlling a gate. And there was this, so you're in like a concrete pillbox that's only about seven foot tall and then there's this big window, and you're blacked out on the inside so you can see everything on the outside. But I'm there, and I have this little lamp, and I'm studying while I'm there. So I'm, I'm protecting. It's, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. But I'm also studying, and I'm reading this book. It was Demonology by Unger. Unger's book on de- demonology is a little freaky. So I'm reading this. And i, I got to read the whole book, and I'm, I'm going through that. And I, I, it's 3 in the morning. The wind's up. You know, big branches are swaying. I'm down in the dark room, you know, looking over a dark night and reading about demons. And I'm kind of new on the job. And then this other guy that worked with me, he decides to sneak up on me. So he, he parks like a block away. He gets up on the wall. He walks the wall to, on top of my building. So I'm in there, you know, hunkered down. It's, everything's dark except for this little bitty light so I can read and that's so I can see out well. And, uh, and then he lays down on top of the building. He has a steel flashlight in his hand. And then he goes, bam, 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 all over the window. And I about came out of my skin. I mean, I was just, whoa, you know, freaked me out. Ran out the back door, you know, but anyway, yeah, it was, it was bad. You know, it just blew me away. So here, James is reminding us demons real, but he's using that, this for an issue. He's saying, hey, you, you're saying you have the right doctrine, you have the right belief about God. He's saying, that's great. Guess what? Demons have the right doctrine. Demons have been to the greatest seminary in the world, right? They were there in the presence of God, but through their own pride rebelled against him. And then he, he does one better. He says, oh, by the way, I'll notch you up one. Demons not only believe correct doctrine, they respond to it. They shudder. They know we're in trouble. They're still opposed to God, but they're freaked out because they know they have nothing like the power of God. They shudder. That's what he's saying. Their belief affects them. How about yours? That's what he's saying. You see, he's telling us we all have faith in something. I did this first hour. So we've used a chair illustration before, right? And so we say, hey, it's like a chair. You know, we could know something, believe something, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're putting our faith in something, right? We've done this before. You know, so I could know the chair. I can look it over. Like this chair, it's got steel, So, I mean, this is heavy duty. This is going to support my weight, right? Not only that, it's cushioned for my comfort. You know, it's it's great. It's a great chair. So I can look at this and I can know, hey, this will hold my weight. And so I can have the right belief about the chair because it will hold me weight. And so I can be fired up. But my faith is not in the chair. What, What do I have to do for my faith to be in the chair? Sit in it. Not until the chair supports my weight 
Now I'm trusting the chair. Now my faith is, I knew about the chair. I studied the chair. I believed that the chair would hold me. But it's not until I'm actually trusting my weight on the chair that I put my faith in the chair. Does that make sense? That's what James is trying to tell us. Demons know, but they don't put their faith in. We can know, make sure you're putting your trust, your faith, by putting all your weight on Jesus. That's what he's telling us. And we've got to get this down. By the way, everybody is standing on something. It's not like you either stand on Jesus as a Christian or you're just kind of floating in the air. We're all standing on something, whether we're Christians, any other religion, or even if we're agnostics, even if we're atheists, we are standing on some belief that we are trusting that is correct. An atheist, they're standing on the belief, the faith, that their concept that there is no God and we should just live to please ourselves because we're worm food later, it doesn't really matter, that's a faith that they have, that they have faith that that's true. Or an agnostic, hey, I know there's a God, but we can't really know who he is, but I'm sure it's all gonna work out when I get there. You know, that's faith in something. We all have faith in something. James is saying, hey, make sure your faith is in Jesus. That's the whole point. That's what James is trying us to get. If you think, I believe Jesus is the son of God, but your belief hasn't impacted your life because you know it, but you haven't put your faith in Jesus, real faith, that's what he's trying to get us to see. Do not think that intellectual belief that doesn't show up in your actions will save you. He's saying if you have an intellectual belief, and it's correct, correct doctrine, biblical belief, but it's not at all showing it up in your life, that's not saving faith, is what James is telling us. So those are the three most dangerous lies. That works will get us there, what we say will get us there, that correct doctrine will get us there. So what's the truth? Now here it is, and I want you to focus on this because this is huge. Really, this is, the whole book is centered around this. We are saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by a faith that remains alone. Did you catch that? We are saved by faith alone. But we are not saved by a faith that remains alone. Meaning, if we think, okay, faith alone, I got it. But that faith remains alone because it never shows up in your life. That's not the faith. Does that make sense? That's what James is telling us. Now, he explains this using a couple of Old Testament characters. And the first one he uses is Abraham. Here's what he says in the next verse, 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, that's some stuff I've got to explain because that sounds confusing. But before I get there, I need to remind you a story time about Abraham, because some of you know all about Abraham and some of you don't know about Abraham. So Abraham is this guy. If you go back in history, there's creation and then there's a flood and then there's the Tower of Babel and then people are sort of populating the earth and they're all over the place and they've drifted further and further from God. And then God says, boom, he chooses one guy named Abraham. And he lives in Iraq or somewhere, Ur of the Chaldees. And so he says, hey, Abraham, I want you to get up. I want you to leave your home. I want you to go to a new place, which is Canaan or what we call Israel today. I want you to go there and follow me. And I'm going to make out of you many nations and one great nation that is going to, as a result of you, through your line, bless the entire world. And so he's in. So he goes. And he gets there, and he does some stuff that he, you know, he's not perfect. I mean, he's got some issues. He runs into some kings. Apparently, his, his wife's a knockout, and, you know, these kings kind of like her. And then he's sort of related to her, so says, well, she's my sister. And, uh, you know, so he won't get hurt, you know. And she's going, what? You know, no telling what kind of marriage issues that brought up. But anyway, he got better later. But so he and his wife, they're living there in Canaan, but God doesn't give them a child. And he keeps waiting and waiting and waiting and no child. He's saying, God says nations are going to come, not just through Abraham, but through Abraham and Sarah will be this way. He will bless the entire world. And they're waiting. And finally, Abraham's a hundred years old. His wife's in her nineties. They have not had a child. It is not looking good. And then Sarah becomes pregnant and they have a child and the child is Isaac. And they both know Isaac is through whom God's promises will flow. So Isaac, it's huge. It's everything. They love Isaac. All attention's on Isaac. He's this one link between Abraham and the entire world being blessed. It all comes down to this one boy named Isaac. And then God does something unthinkable. God tells Abraham, sacrifice your son. And Abraham's like, what? I mean, all through the Bible, God's against child sacrifice. What? And so Abraham believes God, and he does it. He gets his son Isaac. He gets a donkey. He loads the donkey with wood. He heads off to a mountain, Mount Moriah, and he goes up there, and, and he's, God's saying, sacrifice his son Isaac like you would a lamb or a bull on a stone altar on top of a hill. And so he heads there and he takes Isaac. And Isaac is old enough to walk. And Isaac's like, so we're going to go do the sacrifice. Yeah. And Isaac's like, well, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide. And they go up there. They get to the top of the mountain. Could you imagine? These are real people. Abraham binds Isaac. He ties him up, lays him down, gets a knife, raises the knife above Isaac. And just when he determines to plunge it down into the son that he loves, God says, wait, stop right there. 
Now I know that you really love me. He says, hear that, hear that noise? Yeah, that's a ram caught in the thicket. Use that for the sacrifice. And, and we read this story and we're going, why? Why, God, would you even, even suggest such a thing? And we learn to show us what it means to really follow God, to put God first in your life. We know later that Abraham thought, well, somehow God is going to resurrect Isaac. But it didn't happen that way. And so God uses Abraham. So the next thing, now back, now back to the theology, because you're thinking back to that last verse. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so this is a little confusing. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We always say faith alone. That's what Paul says. And James, you're saying not justified by faith alone. Paul says we're only justified by faith. So what's going on here? Is this one of those contradictions in the Bible that people always talk about, but they don't know of any, you know, so they could say the Bible's not really legitimate, they just can't come up with them? Is this what that is? And so we can write off this ancient writing as well, they're a little confused, they're not saying the same thing? No. They're talking about justification. Here's what Paul says in Romans 4.2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul's whole argument is works don't do it. It's faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. And so, but here Paul's saying, whoa, 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 that we're not justified by faith when it's by itself. So what's going on? Here, here, here's the answer to that. The word justified in the Greek has two different meanings, fortunately for us, just like it does in English. So this helps us get it. Justified has two meanings in Greek and has the same two meanings in our English language. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I'm going to show off my typing skills here. One thing is justified means to make right. For example, we say... If you're doing a Word document, you can have your document right-hand justified. Or normally we use left-hand. What does that mean? That we make it line up in a straight line on the left side, and then it's all jagged on the right side. You know what I'm talking about? Or we can right-hand justify it, and then it's you know real neat on the right-hand side, and then the left side is all jagged, or we could do center justified, and then everything's spaced out weird. So we have these options, but that's to make it justified, to make it line up. That's the way Paul uses the word justify. We are made right, we are made straight, we are made correct by faith in God alone. But then James comes and uses the word justified, and he uses it in Greek the same way we use it a little differently in English. And this goes this way. How could you say that? How could you make that statement justify it? How can you say that's right? Justify yourself. And what that means is prove it. Show it. It's not making something right. It's proving that it is right. And so this is what James is saying. Hey, you've already been justified, made right by Christ. But now, 
it's our works that justifies or proves that we have that faith. Does that make sense? Paul says, we can't justify or make ourselves right. It's only through Jesus. James, you'll show you've been made right by living a Jesus-centered life. You'll show that you have been actually justified. So James isn't arguing that works must be added to faith, which is kind of what this sounds like. James is not arguing that works must be added to faith, but rather he's saying genuine biblical faith will inevitably show up in how you live. That's the point. Then James uses another example from the Old Testament. He uses Rahab. Rahab is not an Abraham. She's like the opposite of Abraham. Abraham. So Rahab, she shows up in history when, after Isaac, you know, and Jacob and all that, and they're in, in bondage in Israel for 400 years, and they grow into this great nation, and then they're led out by Moses. They wander around the wilderness for 40 years, and then it's time to go into the land, and they're going to conquer that land. And by the way, God even said that part of the reason they're going to go in and go back to where they live before Egypt and conquer that land is judgment on those people who have been doing things like child sacrifice, ironically. So they go in there, and Moses dies right on the border, and Joshua goes in. The first place they're going to go is a a border-fortified city named Jericho. So Jericho is there, and the people have heard about this nation of Hebrews wandering around for 40 years, and they know where they're eventually coming. So they've been fortifying. They're ready to fend them off. And right before they go in, Joshua sends out some spies, and there's a couple of guys, and they're snooping around Jericho, and the king of Jericho, this fortified city, he hears about it, so he tells all his people, hey, grab these guys, we're going to kill them, they're spies in the land. Rahab is a prostitute. By the way, no young girl grows up dreaming about being a prostitute. In this culture, especially in pagan cultures, women were almost like, you know, property practically in in this pagan culture at this time in history. And if you can imagine how low women were, a prostitute would be even lower than that. We don't know how bad Rahab was treated. She is on the bottom rung, but she's heard about these Jewish people wandering around outside their borders all her life. And she's decided that their God is the right God. And so she finds out these spies are here. The king of Jericho is looking for them. She, at great risk to her life and her family, she hides the spies. They don't find the spies. She arranges for them to get out of town and uh, hide out and eventually get back to their people, which all that happens. And that was all under the kitchen that she asked them, you know, spare me when I know that you're going to take over our country. And that happens. Actually, the rest of the story is she ends up getting married to one of the spies. And she ends up being a Jewish person. And it's in her lineage That Jesus Christ comes. That whole promise of Isaac, that goes through Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, as well. 
He's telling us again, hey, Rahab was justified by what she did. She was proven to have faith by her actions. And then he goes on, James does say, hey, is your faith alive or is it a corpse? In verse 26, he says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So the question is, is your faith living or dead? How do you know? Dead faith doesn't do anything. Dead faith doesn't change your life. True faith shows up. It changes how we live. It shows up in our actions. It proves that our faith is real. So the three most dangerous lies is what James is trying to counteract here. And the question is, have you fallen for them? Because they're all over. That we can do good and we can be good enough to earn heaven, first lie. That if we just say the right things, careful how you hear this, because we do this all the time. We invite people to pray. But if that prayer is just a set of words, that's not faith. It has to be words expressing a trust in Christ alone that you genuinely, sincerely feel and experience. It's not works. It's not words. And it's not even correct doctrine, although correct doctrine is super important. It's how God reveals himself. That's how we know anything about God. True faith is when we put our trust, we know the truth, we can, we can verbalize that. That's good too. And it's correct. And then if we do that, if we put our faith, our trust in Christ, then it will show up in works in our lives. The works don't earn heaven, it's the trust. That's what James is trying to say. Now, before we close, this is so important that I just want to do a little business here. And that is, like we do sometimes, I want to lead you in a prayer of faith. But, but just know, words alone don't save you. It's trust in Christ, real trust in Christ, life-changing trust in Christ, that you're verbalizing with words. Does that make sense? We cry out to God, but it's in real faith. And so some of you, maybe, you've been trusting in the wrong thing. It hasn't really shown up in your life, and one of these three lies is maybe why. And so I'm inviting you to consider today to do a do-over, to try to get it right, to try to make sure that your words are expressing something real in your life, not just something somebody said for you to say to avoid heaven, but a true commitment to want to follow Christ. So I'd like everyone to bow your heads, and I'm going to kind of lead through a prayer. And if, if you're not sure about this, if, you, you know, if you're wondering that faith isn't really showing up in your life, please, please understand I'm not saying that you don't do wrong things. We all do wrong things. And the more it bothers you, tears you up, bums you out, 
that's evidence that you're probably a, a believer. But if you're just kind of on the totally anti, you know, you're on a path of your life that has nothing to do with God. Maybe you don't have real faith. Your faith is dead. So make it real by understanding that you've sinned against God and Jesus came and walked our planet, was the only sinless person to ever live here and therefore the only one qualified to die for somebody else's sins, to pay the price that a righteous, good, holy judge whose God would require. And what we have to do is admit our sin and place our faith, our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone because if we truly have faith, it'll show up in our lives. So if you think you may need a redo, I wanna lead you in that right now. and Just make this prayer your prayer. Our heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Father God, I admit that I have sinned against you Lord, I know that was wrong. I know that the right punishment for that, according to your word, correct doctrine, is that I would be separated from you forever in hell. Lord, that's all of our right punishment. It's right punishment for all of us. And God, I, I know that's true of me. But God, I'm admitting that, and I understand that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my personal sins. And right now, I'm placing my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, recognizing I cannot earn it. I can't talk my way into heaven. I can't even study my way into heaven. Just faith. God, save me. I don't deserve it. God, save me. Come into my life through your spirit and help me to follow you. In Christ's name. Just one more, just a few more seconds. Keep your heads bowed, eyes closed. Hey, if you prayed that prayer and you think, hey, Kevin, yeah, I, this is new to me, but I want to follow Christ, or yeah, I've been around, but I think I need a do-over, and I was sincere when I just prayed that, I'd like you, I'd like you to just let me know. I'm not going to embarrass you, but if you just raise your hand, you can, everybody else's head's down. You can look up and, and make sure that I see your hand. Just raise your hand. Let me see that. And put, thank you, I see right down there, both of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So let me see you, thanks. So let me see your hands, and then when I see you, just put them back now. Thank you. Let's stand together and we'll pray and we'll close with a song. Father God in heaven, we thank you for these with sensitive hearts who have prayed a do-over, Lord, that their faith would be real, that they would follow you, not just wanting fire insurance, Lord, but want to follow you with their life. Lord, that you would stir that salvation, that spirit within them, Lord, that they would follow you. God, thanks for loving us. Thanks for constantly reaching out to us. And even at our worst, that you constantly invite us back. And Lord, that we can know we never lose our salvation. If it's real, it's forever. God, thank you for your gift that's only made possible through your son on the cross. Thank you in Christ's name.